Before we begin today's video, I wanted to let you know that the Cold Case Detective Discord is now live. It's a place to chat over cases with me and the rest of the team directly, hang out with other true crime fans, get behind the scenes pictures and updates, take part in live Q&As with me where I'll try and answer anything you might want to know, or even just hang out and talk about anything. It'd be amazing to see you there. Just follow the link pinned in the comments to join in. Thank you, and now let's move on to the video. Many look back on the early 2000s with fondness, recalling an era before social media and smartphones. There was no Instagram, and YouTube was in its infancy. But crime never stops, regardless of what era we are living in, and the first decade of the millennium was no different. There are hundreds of cases from the early 2000s still awaiting justice, and in today's video, we'll be exploring two twisted, unsolved cases from 2008. The Fond du Lac County Jane Doe On November 23rd, 2008, a group of hunters out in Ashford in Fond du Lac County, Wisconsin, found the partially submerged body of a young woman in a creek near an abandoned farm. The secluded, wooded area in which the group were looking for deer was known locally as a dumping site. The scene that they stumbled across was grim. The remains were in a considerable state of decomposition. When authorities arrived at the location, they realized they would have to chip away at the ice before they could retrieve the body. Police divers headed under the water to look for any other evidence that might possibly be lying at the bottom of the creek. Here, they retrieved a handful of clothing items. The body was dubbed the Fond du Lac County Jane Doe, and she has remained unidentified for 12 years. Estimated to be between the ages of 15 and 21, she was described as having an average frame and thought to weigh from 110 to 135 pounds and had a height of between 4 foot 10 and 5 foot 4. Jane Doe wore a strapless black and pink top with a pink bow, which was from the brand Zoe Beth. Investigators traced the top's origins and found that it came from a variety store chain called Family Dollar and was distributed in the spring of 2008. The victim's underwear, which included a pink bra, was also from Family Dollar and had been shipped between July 1st and July 15th of that same year. Her blue jeans, which had the bottom of the legs rolled up, were from the brand Angels. Jane Doe had no socks or shoes, but did have a hair elastic on her wrist. There are some reports that a bracelet with several pendants was found on the body, but this is not stated in every article. It is, however, included on Jane Doe's page on the Doe Network website. While a St. Benedict medal, roughly the size of a penny, was found at the bottom of the creek, it is unknown if this belongs to the victim or not, as investigators could not determine how long it had been in the water. Due to the state of decomposition, Jane Doe's eye color could not be determined. Her hair was light brown in color and between 12 and 14 inches long. 
it is undetermined exactly what race she was. The victim is thought to be either white or Hispanic, but it cannot be ruled out that she may have been Native American or Asian. She was also possibly multiracial. Other distinct physical traits that Jane Doe had included an overbite, which was not extreme, but may have been noticeable. She had some fillings and no current cavities, and dental sealants were found on her upper molars. She also had a healed rib fracture and was knock-kneed or pigeon-toed, which was possibly visible when she walked as her feet were slanted inwards. Jane Doe also had the condition Spina Bifida Occulta, but was likely asymptomatic. Spina Bifida Occulta is a condition in which a baby's spine does not fully form during pregnancy and is born with a small gap in the bones of the spine. However, it does not often cause any health problems. Because Jane Doe's body was so severely decomposed, her cause of death could not be established, but suicide was ruled out and it was deemed likely that she had died via homicide. The secluded location of her body also added to the suspicions that authorities harbored about her demise. It was estimated that Jane Doe passed between two and four months before her body was found. This was determined by examining the insect traces left on the body. A toxicology test was also done on the young woman, but the results have never been made public. After her autopsy was completed, Jane Doe's dental records were recorded and her femur was sent to the University of Texas to obtain a DNA sample. In the years since her discovery, at least 200 leads have been explored into the potential identity of Jane Doe. The National Center for the Missing and Exploited Children created a computer-generated reconstruction of what Jane Doe may have looked like while she was alive, but it appeared that this image looked like many other women, as police received 200 tips alone after the image was published. However, no solid lead ever came from this clue. Over 30 women are included on the list of exclusions in Jane Doe's case. Amanda Berry was thought to be the Fond du Lac County Jane Doe initially. Amanda was a kidnapping victim of Ariel Castro's and was abducted alongside Michelle Knight and Georgina De Jesus. Castro held them captive in his home in Cleveland, Ohio until they managed to escape one day in May of 2013 when he left the house. Another notable exclusion in Jane Doe's case is Connie McAllister, who went missing at the age of 16 from Wisconsin. She was found alive and well in 2013 in Mexico. At one point, it was thought that a missing woman from Elkton, Maryland was Jane Doe. Brittany Pert was 21 when she disappeared in July of 2008, but her remains were found in December of 2011. Her case remains unsolved. Jane Doe was laid to rest in 2011 when her case grew cold. A Facebook page was created and her case was featured on America's Most Wanted, but both failed to propel the investigation forward. In 2018, things began to pick up again, however. Authorities decided to perform isotope testing on Jane Doe, which revealed that she'd likely spent most of her life in the southwestern United States, areas such as Arizona and New Mexico. The results also indicated that she had lived in the Midwest for about a year before her death. She may have resided in Wisconsin, Northern Iowa, or Southern Minnesota. 
At some point during the investigation, law enforcement attempted to connect the young woman's case to the West Mesa murders, in which 11 women were found buried in the desert of West Mesa in Albuquerque in 2009, but this possibility was ultimately ruled out. Without Jane Doe's true name, it is difficult to speculate about what happened to her, as the possibilities seem endless. Online sleuths have hypothesized that she was from the Dutch community in the Fond du Lac area, or that she'd been sent to live with her extended family over the summer because she was a troubled teen. Others have theorized that she was a runaway or was involved with drugs. However, we have no concrete evidence to point us in the direction of any of these theories. One Reddit user proposed that Jane Doe was a missing 23-year-old from Jefferson County, Colorado. Brandy Jo Mallinson went missing on Boxing Day of 2006. She was five foot, weighed 115 pounds, and had light brown hair. This potential match was forwarded to the appropriate authorities earlier this year, but there have been no updates since. Jane Doe's case does appear to be open and active, but tragically, she has spent over a decade without her real name and without justice. If you have any information about Jane Doe's true identity or her killer, you can phone the Fond du Lac tip line at 920-906-4777. The Lane Bryant Shooting. The morning of February 2nd, 2008 in Chicago, Illinois was a cold, quiet one for the employees and customers of a clothing outlet named Lane Bryant, located in Brookside Marketplace in Tinley Park. An unnamed part-time employee who was 33 years old at the time and who is often referred to as Martha by mainstream media was meant to open up alone, but the store manager, 42-year-old Rhoda McFarland, had decided to come in and help her out on her day off. Family and friends of Rhoda would soon wish that she hadn't. It wasn't long before a supposed delivery man turned up at the store. He was an African-American man wearing a black jacket and a charcoal gray knit cap and appeared to chat happily with the staff and customers for some time before the situation devolved. Suddenly, the man pulled out a gun and announced that he intended on robbing the store. He forced four customers and the two employees into the back of the store where they were bound with duct tape and ordered to lie face down. He used lingerie from the store and pulled it over the head of each victim so their vision was obscured. Thinking quickly, the store manager, Rhoda, managed to call 911. She whispered her location to an operator who told her to stay on the line. The audio tape of the 911 call was later revealed by authorities in which the gunman can be heard saying, I'm losing it before the call ends. The call was received at 10.44 a.m. Although there was an officer nearby, in the mere minute it took him to reach the store, the gunman had fled and had left behind five deceased victims. After the 911 call, the perpetrator shot each of the women execution style. It was a quick death for five of the six victims. The 33-year-old part-time employee, Martha, managed to survive by turning her head at the last minute, so the bullet simply grazed her neck. She played dead until the police arrived. Rhoda, who had recently become engaged, was dead. Four customers also lost their lives that day. Jennifer Bishop, Carrie Chuiso, Sarah Safransky, and Connie Woolfolk. 
Much of the subsequent investigation into the massacre relied heavily on the account of Martha, the only surviving victim. According to her description, the perpetrator was an African-American man standing between five foot nine and six foot tall. He was of a husky build with broad shoulders and was thought to be between 200 and 230 pounds. His face was clean shaven and he looked to be between 25 and 35 years of age. As well as his black coat and gray cap, the perpetrator wore black jeans with rhinestone detailing on the back pocket, which was in the shape of a cursive G. His hair was thick in puffy cornrows with a receding hairline. He had one braid which hung in front of his right ear at cheek level, and it had four green beads at the end of it. Despite this detailed description, plus the publishing of several composite sketches, including an updated one released in 2018, the gunman remains unidentified. When investigators arrived on the scene, the shopping center was shut down and locked up while it was searched for any sign of the killer. However, it was reopened when it was determined that the perpetrator had left the immediate area. $200 had been taken from the tills in the store, and some reports even claim that jewelry was taken from the victims. This has led authorities to believe that the incident was a robbery gone horribly wrong. It is not believed by law enforcement that any of the women knew their killer. On the same day of the massacre, law enforcement found a black man with braided hair sitting in his car in the parking lot of Target. He was apprehended and detained for over an hour before being cleared of any involvement. The man was waiting on his girlfriend to finish shopping. The couple had arrived after the shooting. According to some reports, the perpetrator had left a coffee cup behind, which was used to collect DNA. There was also blood beneath the fingernails of one victim who had attempted to fight him off. The weapon, a 40 caliber Glock pistol, has never been recovered in the years since the massacre occurred, and there was no CCTV in store to help law enforcement with their investigation. The only other clue found was through CCTV cameras from the Target car park. A dark sedan and an SUV type vehicle arrived at 10.39 AM and 10.40 AM and left one after another at 10.45 AM, just one minute after Rhoda's call to 911. The drivers have never been identified and it's unknown if they have any connection to the Lane Bryant massacre. In the aftermath of the crime, a $100,000 reward was offered for information leading to an arrest. Half of this was donated by Lane Bryant's parent company, Charming Shoppers Inc. Lane Bryant also offered to pay for the funerals and announced the establishment of the Lane Bryant Tinley Park Memorial Fund, which sought to provide financial support to the families of the victims. Over the last decade, investigators have received around 7,300 tips, but not one has successfully panned out. In 2019 alone, they received 58 tips, a lot for a 12-year-old case, according to authorities. Detective Ray Violetto, who is currently working the case, said, we're missing one piece to put the whole total together. The Tinley Park Police Department has had no shortage in assistance in the investigation, including help from NASA, the FBI, the Illinois State Police, and the South Suburban Major Crimes Task Force. But all of this, has failed to help catch the culprit. In recent years, experts have created a profile of the perpetrator. 
he is believed to be someone who has spent time in jail before and vowed never to go back, hence why he attempted to kill all six witnesses. He believes himself to be someone who has been mistreated by society and who has taken the wrong lessons from his time behind bars. The fear of being identified is what prompted him to kill. Online sleuths have theorized that the killer may be a woman, or possibly a trans person, going by the initial composite image of the culprit where some believe the facial features are more feminine. Others have hypothesized that one of the victims was specifically targeted. The surviving victim, Martha, was the only one scheduled to be there that day. This, combined with her true identity being withheld, has led many to speculate that she was the target of the shooter. However, other online users have noted that it seems like a strange place to target somebody, and none of the victims led a high-risk lifestyle. In terms of the police theory, some have argued that nobody would rob a store in the morning, as most don't have much in the way of cash at that time of day. The Lane Bryant store in which the tragedy occurred never reopened. In 2013, TJ Maxx moved into the store. The $100,000 reward remains available. Authorities believe that the missing information they need to close the case will come from somebody with inside knowledge of the offender or the crime. If you have any information pertaining to the Lane Bryant massacre, you can contact the Tinley Park tip line at 708-444-5394. Or email Lane Bryant Tipline at tinleypark.org. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and reactions, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. If you are still hungry for true crime content, remember to check out the Cold Case Detective podcast by following the link below. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.